All right, for the rest of us that aren't children and that are uh, buckling your seatbelts in the pews, getting ready for uh, another hardcore dose of the truth, I'm wondering, where do you think would be a good place to get wisdom for a life lived in God's sovereign grace? Where might be a good place to find wisdom for a life lived in God's sovereign grace? I see, yes, my sister Alicia, yep, my brother Frank, there's Pat. All the rest of you look really confused. It's the Bible. What? I know! I know! Who knew? Who knew that would be where you would find wisdom for a life lived in God's sovereign grace? I'm pretty sure, Chris. I'm pretty sure, Brother Chris, that that would be the most logical place to figure out, you know, not just how to live a life lived in God's sovereign grace, but also to understand our Lord and the character of him. And so let me phrase it for another way for the rest of us. What ails you? What do you struggle in? What relationships do you have a hard time with? I'm guessing first and foremost with the Lord, maybe. But maybe as parents, you're struggling as a parent. Maybe as a son or daughter, you're struggling as a son or daughter. Maybe in your work, you're struggling with your work relationships. Maybe in school, you're having trouble with your school and your classmate relationships. Let me point you to the Bible where you can get help for any and every of those scenarios and many more. This is the truth for life. This is God telling you through his word why he created the world, how he created the world, the purpose behind everything, and how to live in it. Now I want to remind you of Dwight Lyman Moody's famous quotes that I gave you last week. There's a hundred people. We don't have a hundred people in here, and honestly, we're going to break the uh, statistical norm of this. But out of a hundred people, one of them will read the Bible. The other 99 of them will read you, the Christian, the Bible reader. Is it any wonder that we have so many problems in today's society and culture? You've left out the reason and the purpose behind why you're even here in the first place. So let's change that. Dear Heavenly Father, as always, I certainly thank you for your blessings. I thank you mostly in this moment and in this sermon for your word. Certainly your salvation and your grace and your glory and all the blessings that we've received certainly are important too. But Lord Jesus, you've given us your word. You've given us your truth for life and how to live it and how to lead it. And so, Lord Jesus, tune our hearts and our minds to your will through the word. Continue to sanctify us by the blessing that you've given us in the Holy Spirit. And Lord, just let us live lives for your glory and our good. Where We continually flounder and flourish trying to find our own way and our own path. But Lord, continue to bring us back to you. Take my life and let it be consecrated all for thee. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So last week, we kind of dealt with the heart motives and showing the inside-out mentality that the world has. We see people pretending to be Christians to get something out of people. We see people and their heart motives behind why they do the things that they do. And I wanted to remind you all that this letter was written by Paul to Timothy, elder to elder, and his church. And they're dealing with fear. And they're dealing with timidity. And a lot of that fear and timidity deals with the uncertainty. And as I've said in the sermons past, 2,000 years ago was very different than now. But ultimately, human beings are still the same. The reason why I say it's different is because Paul's in jail, you know, writing this. He gets beaten on a pretty regular basis for speaking the truth in Christ. He has people, you know, certainly uh, badmouth him. He's got people trying to stab him in the back all the time. Timothy's a little nervous. He's like, yeah, we're dealing with some of these things. But here's the thing. 
You either identify with all the people who, at the end of the day, could probably honestly care less about you, or you can stick with God and identify with Him. And that's what Paul keeps pushing towards. And if you haven't noticed, that's what I keep pushing towards. I want to remind everybody in here that you're not here because of me. Maybe you like me, maybe you appreciate me, maybe I'm easily respected or something like that. I'll debate all that with you. But at the same time, you, you should be here because of Jesus, not because of Eric, not because of another member or family, things like that. Like, yes, we have the influence and the power, but you are Christ's. You identify with Jesus. And if I was all about telling you what to do and how to live your life and everything else and trying to manipulate you, I would hope it would turn you off and you would walk away. But don't walk away from Jesus. I understand the necessity to walk away from the church at times because not all churches are Christ's churches. Some of them are really clubs designed to get a bunch of people that look alike and talk alike to support whatever it is that they want to support other than Jesus. And as I was explaining to a newer sister in the Lord this morning, everything that comes our way, I hope, just ricochets and goes right out through us. We get these amazing blessings from the Lord. May they continually flow out of us to reach other people. I had a great conversation with a brother in the Lord, too, that really encouraged me because at the end of the day, he said, yeah, I'm willing to be used by the Lord to bring about the salvation of other people. I'm like, man, awesome, because that's what it's about. That's entirely what it's about. And even as you're reading this passage, which I know you've read before, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 3.17, like I'm not even going to look at it. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the person of God, the man of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Maybe you know that by heart, maybe not. Maybe you've also heard the Hebrews one. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart and no one is hidden from the sight of him who judges justly oh powerful stuff the word of god is powerful powerful stuff and so we see that and we know it but i think you need to see what it's really about more so because a lot of people will fall. Oh, it's for reproof. It's for correction. It's for training in righteousness. It's, it's, you know, those things. Those are kind of the afterthoughts. If you really studied this passage and really understood what the word of God was, was for, but in the grand scheme of things, Paul's still encouraging Timothy first and foremost. And again, I remind you, your identity with Christ is the most important identity you have. It is one that cannot change and cannot be taken away. As a parent, your identity can change and it can be taken away. As an employee or a worker, as a mother or a daughter, doesn't matter. All of those other identities that you may have are subject to change. But... As the text reads, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work.
So, first and foremost, to bridge last week to this week, Paul is now using his life as a contrast to the false teachers that were mentioned last week. Those whose outward actions were empty and whose inward heart motives were misleading. But Paul, it's like, I'm not trying to mislead anybody. In fact, because I'm telling the truth, this is really hard. <laughs> this is a really hard life. I don't think anybody in this room, regardless of your life in Christ or your life before Christ, would deny that life is hard, that it's filled with challenges, that it's not the way that we want it, and that bad things have a tendency to happen. Whether it's my fault or the fault of someone else next to me, it all seems to find us where we are. But Paul's using his life as a contrast to the false teachers, and it's not for his own personal glory as we see in society and culture and as we talked briefly about the false teachers, but Paul for the glory to God and his sovereign grace over his life. Look at that, that all the persecutions he endured, everything, sufferings that happened at those three cities, that wasn't all inclusive. Let's not forget about the jail time in Rome. Let's not forget about uh, tons, tons. I don't want to get into everything about Paul because we should really theoretically get into everybody's life then at that moment. Paul is just giving himself as an example that, hey, I've been through a lot of things. But hopefully you see that Paul in his honesty and his sincerity for Christ, and at that time that he had that meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus, that, boy, the Holy Spirit has changed Paul. He is a very different man than who he used to be. And we'll go into that, too, in a minute. But it's God's sovereign grace that the Lord rescued him from all of those things. And I think back to my life, even my 35 years of life before I knew Jesus, before having that road to Damascus moment myself with the Lord, 35 years of darkness, chasing after wind, striving after the wind, if you will. It's probably better said. And where did it lead me? I really felt empty. You know, as much success as I had, I just wanted more. There was never enough. Nothing was ever enough. I was constantly devouring and continued to devour. But the Lord brought me through that. And looking back, I'm glad that he did. And especially in that way, because I feel like I've lived a full life without Christ. And it sucked. And now I'm living a life in Christ. And certainly while it's hard, it has more meaning and purpose in the last 11 years than the first 35 years. Some of you nodding your head, that's positive. I appreciate that because I know your stories and your testimonies as well. And it is the testimony of the truth for those who have their lives changed by the Lord Jesus. So another thing Paul is doing here is he's demonstrating to Timothy God's sovereign grace over Paul's adventures. I'm going to use that as our happy term now. In Paul's adventures in the gospel. Some adventures are amazing. Some adventures, maybe not so much amazing. But I'm going to debate that, and I'm going to tell you all adventures in Christ are amazing. The good ones, when I'm at the top of the valley, and like I'm having this conversation, and the light bulb goes off in them, and like they're getting it, and they're getting saved by Jesus, and I'm like, that's awesome, I can't do this, but I get to witness it. And then there's the times where people yell at me and tell me what a reject I am and how they're not really doing things for the church or anything else. They might be doing it for me, and it sucks. It's an adventure. Paul's adventures in jails, Paul's adventures in salvation, Paul's adventures in going, man, it's all an adventure. And I hope and encourage you to look at your life as an adventure because it is. A lot of times you might look at it as a rut, like, well, it's Monday, I go to work on Mondays, and then I'm going to come home, and then I'm going to eat food, and then I'm going to watch TV, and then I'm going to go to bed, and then Tuesday's going to come, and I'm going to do it again. No, you miss it. Don't miss it. I understand ruts. I lived them. I worked them. I did all of that. But remember this, every day is holy. You might seemingly, theoretically, be in a rut, 
But when I say every day is holy, it's set apart. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. You will never have this day back. Whatever you decide to do today is what you do today. You are not promised tomorrow, and you are not able to get yesterday back. So where does that leave you? That leaves you in the adventure of today. Well, what are we doing today? Well, that's your choice. If you want to go with that mentality and that attitude, that's your choice. If you want to be excited about the adventure called life, and especially the adventure of walking with the creator of heaven and earth and everything that's in it, by all means, people, let's do it. Let's do it. So, again, this demonstrates to Timothy God's sovereign grace over Paul's adventures, meaning that Timothy has God's sovereign grace over his adventures too, which means that everybody in this room has God's sovereign grace over their life and their adventures as well. And so, Paul also acknowledges in this that being faithful in service to Christ does bring worldly sufferings and persecutions. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't know what else I can really ultimately tell you about that other than, boy, look at Paul's life. Look at any of the people in the Bible's lives. Then maybe look at your life. And then maybe if you want some more, you can ask me about my life. I will tell you all about these adventures in the gospel, the good, the bad, and the ugly, if you will, because it really does cover the full spectrum of life. But faithful service to Christ is going to make people not like you. Right? And you wonder why. Don't. Did they like Jesus? Did Jesus do anything malicious to people? Or did Jesus just very simply tell people the truth that they didn't want to hear? <laughs> he very simply told them the truth that they didn't want to hear. And because they didn't want to hear it, they're against him. Now they're persecuting him. Why is Paul in jail right now? It's because he talked about Jesus. And oh, it's very different than how us Jewish Pharisees want to deal with Jesus. And then there's persecution. And there's suffering. And there's trials. And there's tribulations. So, Paul is also providing a model for Timothy to follow as an elder. As an elder myself, and as Chris knows this, and I told him, we're examples. We're maybe not the most shining brightest examples because, honestly, we need to continue to point you to Jesus. But I'm going to be an example of how Jesus has changed my life. I will talk to you about anything and everything at any point in time. I'm not scared. I'm not shy. If you remember, I was a salesman, and so I talked to people about all kinds of different things and different avenues and different lives. But what's bitterly ironic coming from that background is that I was never supposed to talk about sexual preferences or adventures. I was never supposed to talk about uh, politics, and I was never supposed to talk about religion because those are the most polarizing things that can change people in a heartbeat. Like you say one thing one way, they will instantly put up a wall and be done with you. And yet, what do I talk about now? I wouldn't say I talk about religion because I'm not promoting a works-based system for you to earn your own righteousness, but it does fall under that overarching big category in our culture and our society called religion. But I speak Jesus. At least I hope I do. So, Paul's providing that model and that example as well in this. And so, Paul in this is also showing his values, values that are not optional or relative, but what Paul believes to be of great importance in the life of the Lord's servant. You followed my teaching, you followed my conduct, how I hold myself, how I talk with people, how I present myself, my aim in life, which is hopefully for all of us, Jesus is Lord. I'm here to tell people about Jesus, and everything else I do is an avenue to get to tell people about Jesus. Your work you do is just that, and it can change in a heartbeat. So, conduct, aim in life, the faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I think Paul's pretty on top of that and very adamant about that. His patience, 
his love, his steadfastness. These are all fruits of the Spirit, too. I'll tell you as well. Um, it's all part of how we're changed. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. That's what God's working in you. And it says in that Galatians chapter 5 that against these things there is no law. There is no fault in being patient. There is no fault in true love. There is no fault in kindness. There is no fault in goodness, graciousness, and especially self-control, which is what a lot of people in this world need. Self-control. <coughs> so, just to recap, before I go into this next part, Paul's using his life as a contrast to the false teachers mentioned last week. And again, it's not for his personal glory, but glory to God and his sovereign grace. He's demonstrating, Paul's demonstrating to Timothy, God's sovereign grace over his adventures in the gospel. Paul acknowledges that being faithful in service to Christ does bring worldly sufferings and persecutions. Paul's providing a model for Timothy as an elder to be an example. And Paul is also showing his values. Values that he doesn't believe are optional, but are values that are in every believer. Especially those that are called to be elders over the flock. Those who are called to help and protect the others. But I don't want to stop there, because this ultimately is about the Word of God and making sure you get your information from the Word of God. So I'm going to read some passages for you. First passage I'm going to read you involving suffering and persecution comes from Paul again. It comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Some of you know this, others may not. Some of you will remember once you hear it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I'm also going to read to you James, the brother of Jesus, which, man, you want to talk about a hard upbringing and a hard life. Try being the younger brother of Jesus. Man, that's got to be rough. I wonder, and it's not mentioned in Scripture, and I praise the Lord it's not mentioned in Scripture, but I'm, I'm wondering like how many times Mary was like, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? Oh, that would be so crushing, devastating. But James, the brother of Jesus, literally starts his letter this way. After greetings, verse 2, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Hi, by the way, enjoy the suffering. That's how he starts his letter. Maybe you don't like Paul's testimony. Maybe you don't like James' testimony. Let's talk about the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange was happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, a disciple and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, 
And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God be? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their lives and their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Amen. One more for you. Let's go to Philippians, where Paul's in jail again, this time in Rome. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 to 11. And I want you to think about yourselves in this, and I want you to think how awesome you think you are, and how really, at the end of the day, you're not that awesome. And you'll understand why. Because Paul, of anybody, if you think you're going to be saved because you're better than other people, because you do more good than other people, Paul will shut you down in this moment. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Even though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the people of Israel. I am from the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I am a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, I was under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ Jesus and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from my works and the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ that righteousness from God that depends on faith alone, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now we'll go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and you'll see Paul's noteworthy and trustworthy saying, and maybe it'll all make a little more sense. If I have died with him, I'm going to live with him. If I endure, I'm going to reign with him as well. If I deny him and don't care about him, he's not ultimately, he's going to deny us as well. But even if I'm faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. What's your identity? What's our meaning in life? I want you to know, certainly, the sufferings and persecutions that you may or may not endure. Obviously, we're not going to be like Paul and Timothy and have to worry about those things. But honestly, we're so much weaker today than they were all those years ago. We just don't even want to talk to people at all. We've bought into the lie to be scared of everybody and everything and that we don't want to deal with it. But you need to know that the sufferings and the persecutions are indeed a gift of grace. They change who you are. They make you appreciate the Lord even that much more. I appreciate the Lord that much more because he went through a lot harder things than I sure have in my life. And yet I'm all like, poor me, poor me, poor me. That's called pride. Sin. Because I make it all about myself. I've missed the mark. I've failed to glorify God and I'm struggling to glorify myself, which is where my hopelessness comes from. But all my hope is in Christ. 
My victory isn't in me, it is in Christ. And for wisdom, for a life lived in God's sovereign grace, you need to understand that suffering, suffering and persecutions are a gift of that grace, of God. And it is a means to transform our hearts and our minds to fully appreciate the magnitude, to have the gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. Because you can't do it yourself. And time and time again continues to prove that. So, Paul then goes into that second point. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. And then take the first part of verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. In this, Paul's like, okay, and this is especially pertinent for us. Maybe we have good, solid people in our lives. Maybe we don't. The point is, though, you need good, solid people in your life. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. I heard another sister in the Lord talk about her family and be like, well, or not necessarily your family, but friends and whatnot, and that how ultimately, like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't need to go to church. Uh, that's great that you think that's optional, <laughs> but it's not optional. Is that not part of the calling? Are you not a member of Christ's church when you're saved? I respect that not all churches are Christ's churches, but it's a trial and an error, and it's a perhaps a period of suffering to try to find a decent Christ-honoring church. I repeat this again. We are a Jesus-preaching, Bible-teaching, community-reaching body of believers. Jesus-preaching, Bible-teaching, community-reaching body of believers. That covers the entirety of the purpose of the church. It's the functions. We go back to Acts chapter 2. We were made for worship, discipleship, fellowship, which is like a partnership and a stewardship of our resources and talents together in the gospel, and then to be on mission together, to fulfill Jesus' great commission on our lives, which says go and make disciples. So Timothy learned from his mom, learned from his grandma, learned from Paul in his life. And remember those people and their honesty and their sincerity and what kind of impact that they had on his lives and other trusted sources. Because there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. You need other people. And in fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, when God considers creating the human, God has always lived in togetherness too. He says, let us make man in our image. And male and female, he created them. It's verse 26 and 27 of the first chapter in the first book of the Bible. And God wasn't alone. Thus, you can't be alone. You need people. First and foremost, you need God, but then you also need a church, which is the body of believers, to help support and encourage you along the way. And what's awesome about it is that you're going to do the same as what you need. You're going to support and encourage people, and they're going to support and encourage you. And it's going to be amazing, because it's all knit together by Jesus. And through the Holy Spirit, we grow and are sanctified and we're comforted in all of this. And so we have those people. And of course, I mentioned the Holy Spirit as well. And that's the whole overarching point of what Paul's getting to. Like, hey, you've got good people. This is good stuff. And so we go to this latter half of verse 15, which would be verse 15b, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now you'll notice that when I 
repeated earlier, I repeated verse 16 and 17. All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What we miss, we, myself included at first glance, is that this verse 15b is the first and the most important point of what scripture is and does. Highlight it. Memorize it. Add it to your memorization of verse 16 and 17 because it's that powerful. Scripture makes you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Without that starting point, you have nothing else. If you want to know how to be a better dad and you know take the 10-step program and continue to work and do your works because you want to appease God and you want to do everything else, skip that very first step. Tons of people do it. And then within a couple years, they'll be out of the church by far because they're tired of doing all the works. They're tired of performing, tired of pretending to be something that they're not. But the first and most important point of Scripture this is in our name, just like Bible's in our name. Because that Dwight Lyman Moody thing scared the bejeebers out of me because I knew it to be true. Because I knew I'd walk 35 years of my life without reading Scripture. Even though I borrowed a few Bibles from the Gideons and hotel rooms, I didn't read it. I just borrowed it and took it because it was, why not? It's free. It's right there. I'll just take it. I didn't read it. I didn't use it to do anything. Bible's in our name, just like gospel is in our name. Because without Jesus, you got nothing. You have nothing. The whole title of the sermon series is Gifts of Grace According to the Promise of Life in Christ Jesus. Or the Promise of Life of Christ Jesus. Either way, Christ Jesus, first and foremost, this is the first. And there's four parts to it. And I'm not going to give you all four parts because this could be like a forever sermon. We could talk about these forever. The three big points I'm about to give you have ten sub points underneath them. Right? Oh, that Dina's, the look on her face. <sighs> this could be a while. This could be, no. First big point. It gives you wisdom out of this gives you wisdom. Uh, again, are you going to listen to the subjective culture and the subjective society that changes every year, two years, five years, 10 years, 100 years? 2,000 years ago to, to, to now, culturally is different, culturally, but from a humanitarian standpoint, no, you're all the same. You're all still sinners. You're all still idolized. You're all still worship. You're all still covered, covet. You all still lie, cheat, murder, steal. You all do it. I do it too. Wisdom. Wisdom for how to live this life. Salvation. Boy, that's a word that just gets thrown under the bus. Kind of like gospel. I've heard it a gazillion times. I don't need to hear it again. Well, I think you need to hear it like every day because you need to remember that this isn't it. And that whatever is ailing you in the moment of your life, we are destined for something so much greater than any mumbo jumbo. As Paul says it again, I am certain that the present sufferings in this life will pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us when Christ Jesus returns and we go with him to be with him. And then we call that where we go with him and where we be with him called heaven because we need a destination for our little brains to concept but heaven what it really is you're going to be with God it's not so much a place or a thing or a bounty or whatever it is it's you're going to be with your creator where there's going to be no more sin and it's going to be holy and awesome all the time praise the Lord <laughs> faith God has always saved people by faith it's amazing to me, religion, that you do these things and God's going to save you. That's so far from the truth. Abraham was the forefather of faith. 
The law came 420 years after him through Moses. And yet somehow Abraham, who's the forefather of faith, now has faith being captured through the law, which came 420 years, which means all those people in those 420 years are kind of kind of sunk, I guess, right? Like, they couldn't possibly know God. They didn't have any law to follow and obey and crush themselves with. So why do we follow that? Makes no sense. It's always been by faith. You need to know how powerful faith is and what it does and what it means and why it is the necessary component for your salvation and your wisdom. And then the last and the fourth quote-unquote point of this very first point is Christ Jesus. If you ask me, he's just the point of everything. He's the reason I get up in the morning. Be honest. There's really no other reason other than I'm the Lord's. Obviously, he wants me around today. So here I am. What are we doing today, God? What are we doing? And so, again, the very first point of Scripture, and to make you complete, is that it makes you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Numero uno, cannot skip it. Please don't try. The second point you need to know about Scripture and this goes into the beginning part of verse 16. But we neglect it or we circumvent it to some degree. But you need to know and you need to accept and you need to deal with this that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it, every single word on this page. Is it entirely trustworthy? Do I get to pick and choose what I want to believe? Can I cherry pick the Bible? Can I be like, well, that sounds good. I'd like to apply that to my life. That sounds terrible, Jesus. I don't want to deal with that. Do I get that option? No, I don't. Why do people cherry pick? Why do they think they can in the first place? Again, just human nature. It's about ourselves. This sounds good to me. I'm going to stick with it and I'm going to go with it. I don't like the way that sounds. Therefore, I'm not going to follow it. It is entirely true or it is entirely false. Pick your poison. You need to come to that conclusion and you need to accept it. Now, you're also saying, but there's so many translations. There's the ESV, the NIV, the NLT. Then we've got these weird ones out there called the Passion Translation. And, uh, oh, I forget what the other crazy one is. It starts with an M. No, the message. Yeah, boy, that thing is nuts. If any of you read the message, stop, burn it, and throw it away. If you know anybody that reads the message, stop them, help them, and burn that for them. Eugene Peterson has done nobody any favors. He has literally paraphrased the whole Bible to make it sound good for the listeners. He has taken away any kind of teeth whatsoever, any kind of challenge to the hearer and the believer, and he's just like, it's all sunshine and rainbows. It's wonderful. I do not envy Eugene Peterson when he meets God in heaven. What he has done to God's people is nothing short of apostasy. And he has led them away from Jesus and made it all about people. It is not about you. It has never been about you. But God loves you and he created you so understand that you indeed are valuable and important. But the second most important thing you need to know about Scripture is that it's breathed out by God. All of these people who wrote the Bible, there are 66 different books of the Bible written by 42-ish authors, because we don't necessarily know who they all are, but roughly 42-ish authors, and they were all led by the Holy Spirit. And even in those translations and even those other things, as many times as the Bible's tried to be destroyed because, you know, it helps people and it's the power of God in a sense. It's one of the spiritual disciplines that have been given us to inform us. It makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And certainly the devil doesn't want that. So tons of people want to destroy the Bible because they're following the devil kind of only get the choice. You either follow the devil or you follow God. 
that's where we're at in society and our lives. But that scripture, ultimately, again, it's that it's improved, it's inspired, it's inerrantly given to us by God. And regardless whether it's the English Standard Version, the NIV, the NLT, read, much like last week, what the heart motives were for why they created this translation. Personally, we go with the ESV, and I've been very borderline on the NIV. I think they both do a great job. The ESV, I was kind of born into, which as I'm memorizing verses, certainly it kind of had an impact on me because, well, I've memorized it now, so maybe I'm going to stick with it. But at the same time, I have no problem reading the NLT. I have no problem reading the NIV. I have no issue with those. I have an issue with the message and the passion because those are whack. But, <laughs> but what were the heart motives behind why they made them? And the ESV was trying to be sincere, a word-for-word -word literal translation in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, in the Greek, in the New Testament. You know, the NIV, again, trying to do that, but using different uh, times. The King James Version, while certainly outdated, because the, thou, the, we don't really talk like that anymore. So the ESV is the predecessor of the King James Version. It came after it. It went King James Version, New King James Version. I think there was something in between. And then came the English Standard Version. So the English Standard Version is just farther along from the King James Version. But have you ever met one of those King James Version nut jobs that's like, well, if you don't read the King James Version, you're not even reading the Bible. It's all heresy after that. No, you're wrong. I'm sorry. That's not true. People are sincere, and they're led by God and the Holy Spirit to do such. It is entirely true, or it is entirely false. There's no gray area in between. And as the Bible tells us, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. Think about the prophets. Do you think the prophets were maybe inspired by God? Of course. Do you think the kings of past were inspired by God? Of course. Do you think Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, were inspired by God? Yeah, I would say so. Do you think the Gospels written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were maybe inspired by Jesus a little bit? A little bit? A lot of bits. I'm going to agree with that. How about Paul writing these epistles? Over half of the New Testament is written by Paul. Do you think maybe Paul was inspired by God? Okay. I'm glad to see we're all on the same page. To me, it's common sense, but I, I can't play with the common sense anymore. We have to lay it out there for what it is these days. So, the four points under the part that it's all breathed out by God is that next part, which is, uh, you know, what the second half of verse 16. It's profitable for teaching. That's the first point. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. And it's profitable for training in righteousness. It's those four things. And I'm just going to give you a brief take of those four things. Teaching. You need to know who God is. You need to know the character of God and you need to understand him. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. Whether you're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, God has not changed. If anything, there might be a misunderstanding because you don't understand the covenants that God had in place as he went throughout redemptive history. But teaching, you need to know about the character of God and who God is, as well as the doctrines of theology taken from his word. And when I talk about doctrines of theology, that is a massive list. It kind of goes back to, well, do you know what wisdom is? Do you know what salvation is? Do you know what faith is? Do you know who Christ Jesus is? Do you understand election? Do you understand the doctrine of justification? Do you understand adoption? Do you understand sanctification? Do you understand glorification? Do you see where I'm going here? There are lots of doctrines to understand this and how God works. 
you know, uh, a long time ago we did 10 facets of the gospel and it was all about 10 different doctrines of Christ. And we went through all of those and then some because they're important. It's part of your salvation, which is that very first point, right? Wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That salvation that we talk about is so all-encompassing. It includes so much, and we use it as just kind of a bucket to be like, well, we talk about salvation, and then we're throwing in all these other different doctrines under that salvation. But you need to separate it all and understand it all for your own benefit, for your own walking in this world, for your own understanding the Lord, and for this next point, that reproof, relearning or remembering in order to refute or discern false teachings. To relearn or remember what you've already learned in an effort to refute or discern false teachings. The false teachings are in abundance. Paul's talked about that in this letter. He talks about it a lot in 1 Timothy. Talked about it when we were reading in uh, Romans. James talks about it. Philippians talks about it. There's no shortage of false teachings. There's no shortage of people that do religion for the sake of themselves rather than for the Lord Jesus, which to me is the greatest problem that there is. So, relearning or remembering truth so that you're able to refute it or discern it as you hear it from the outside. Because you're going to hear it from the outside. I hear it from all the time. One of the craziest things happened this week. I don't know if you know who Russell Moore is, but Russell Moore used to be the leader of the Southern Baptist Convention. He now works for like uh, Christianity Today, but he was a theologian a long time. Uh, I have respect for him. He's written a lot of books. He's very solid in Jesus. So he's preaching this sermon about turning the other cheek. I'm sure you've heard Jesus talking about that, you know. Eye for an eye, but I tell you, turn the other cheek, and so on and so forth. A congregant literally came up to him and said, what are you preaching on? That's terrible for today's society. And he said, well, I'm preaching about Jesus. These are Jesus's words. And that's, well, that's too weak for today's society. Quit it. Are you kidding me? Who does that person think they are? Well, a sinner. That's who they know they should be are. But they probably think they're better than other people. If you're going to go up to Russell Moore, for Pete's sake, and tell him this kind of story, that when he's preaching about turning the other cheek and literally quoting Jesus' words, and then the congregate decides, oh, that's too weak for today's society and today's culture. Like, you got to spruce that up a little bit. What? What? I don't even know where to begin. I wouldn't even know where to go after that. I'd be like, I'm literally tongue-tied. And as you know, I said earlier, I'm a sales guy. I'm not really easily tongue-tied. I can vomit all over people all day and night if I need to. I can find one common thread amongst us, and we can just keep talking and talking and talking and talking. But you say something like that to me where Jesus isn't enough now? Like, What? I don't know where to go. So that's the second part of it. That's the reproof. You, you're going to need to refute or discern false teachings. You're going to need to. It's not optional. It's not optional in today's world. Now, you get to the third part for correction. Kind of goes together with reproof, right? Because in order for you to relearn or remember to discern the false teaching, you're going to have to correct those false teachings and the false beliefs, or straighten the doctrinal belief out so that it is correct. Seems common sense, again, but I need to elaborate on that because common sense eludes us these days in many different ways. So, that correcting false beliefs, I just tell you off personal note and personal merit, I remember starting this, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, okay, I'm just going to you know, save a ton of atheists and agnostics and people who aren't in the faith. No, I have spent more time correcting false teaching than anything else. Because people, again, don't read the Bible. 
They just listen to whatever Joe Schmo is up here. And whatever Joe Schmo is up here, oh, well, Joe Schmo said it, so it must be true. Just like the internet. The internet doesn't lie. The internet's 100% true. You can't put anything on the internet without it being true. There's like internet police. Come on. But that is what I've spent most of my time doing is correcting false teaching. More so than reaching the atheists and agnostics, which because of false teaching are atheists and agnostics because they're like, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want anything to do with it. Like you can keep your Christian dumb, right? 99 people are reading the Christian again. And so false teachings, and now you're, you're blabbing out and you're telling what to do. And again, we had a great group on Thursday night, and I thought we had this great moment where one member was talking about, oh, well, our society and our culture, because we're allowing all these gay things and this, that, and the other, that our society's crumbling. And then we had the opposite end of the spectrum where at uh, certain businesses and certain workplaces, you can just do whatever you want. You can be all willy-nilly. Did you want to be a unicorn today? Good news, you can be a unicorn today. And that's where we're at. And you had the perfect example of legalism because he's imposing God's beliefs on other people. Whereas, guess what? You really shouldn't impose crud on anybody because you're a sinner too and you need a savior. So maybe you should go back to wise for salvation through faith in Jesus rather than indoctrinating or trying to make other people follow God's law, which nobody can do, which is why we need a savior. And then that last part, uh, informing us what is right to do in God's eyes, which is an ongoing lifelong discipleship and or training. I need to, to bring this home. That wrap it up box is going off in the back. So uh, ultimately, yes, training in righteousness. I hope that makes sense too, very simply. Like, yeah, there is a way, there is a means, but let's be real. You're a sinner. You need a savior. You need that first point more than anything else. And then it brings us to the third and overarching point of Scripture too. You've got the first point, which is makes you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. You've got the second point that you need to understand is that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is God's Word. Don't mess with it. And then the third point, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's two parts. Complete, whole. Everybody on this planet without Jesus is incomplete. They don't necessarily know how to understand who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? What's being done to fix it? They don't understand major philosophical reasoning behind why we're even here in the first place. You take life as an accident and then you make it to be whatever you want it to be. But scripture is to make us whole. God makes us whole. So that the piece of us that's missing, we can be complete and we can understand ourselves. We can understand the world around us. We can understand God and we can understand, again, life from A to Z. All the questions and the answers are in this book and have been in this book since God's given us this book. <laughs> since he's given us the scriptures. Even Timothy had the scriptures. He didn't have the New Testament to the same degree, but he has the letters of Paul, which Peter does call scriptures later on in his letter, second letter. So the overarching point of the scriptures is to make you whole, to make you complete. And remember, shalom, which means peace, it's physical peace, it's emotional peace, and it's spiritual peace. Whole, all three of those. If one of those is off kilter, you're off kilter. You're, you're, you're a mess. Most people don't even know they have the third one, the spiritual one. Do you understand why the world is such a mess and why people are such a mess? You don't even know a piece of you and a part of you that's missing. You understand the physical part of you, which of course is a challenge. You understand the emotional part of you, which is a much larger challenge because we all have many issues in that. But Again, that's where we're at, and it's to make you whole, and then to be in service to our amazing Father. Those are the two important parts to consider. But it's to make you whole, ultimately. We're being made complete in Christ. 
That's the purpose of Scripture. It's got to start off with to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. It's the biggest thing that we do on a daily basis. That's why gospel is the first word in our name. Bible's the third because it just kind of flowed there. If I said gospel, Bible, life, church, that'd be weird. So, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, so, looking at this from the sermon title, wisdom for a life lived in God's sovereign grace comes from the scriptures. And the examples from history, such as Paul, as well as every other character, that have been presented to us. We have those people as examples. You have the church right now as an example. I don't want you to neglect by any means that the most important example is our Lord and Savior Jesus, and that's the four Gospels. Those stories and his life and what he's done first and foremost, but every other character in the book, and, and there's no character, and especially not Paul, I'm going to be like, oh, well, you all should be more like Paul. Like, that's stupid. You should all be like a sinner. Why would I tell you to be like something you already are? So if someone tells you from a morality sermon standpoint, oh, you should be more like Paul, and he did this, and he did that, that's nuts. Makes no sense. Should be like Jesus, first and foremost. But wisdom for a life lived in God's sovereign grace comes from the Word of God, comes from the example of Jesus, comes from the example of those who know Him and love him, and serve him, and are willing to go to jail and die for him. Whatever it takes. I don't care. If I have to go to jail and die for him, so be it. That just means I'm going to be with him that much faster. And I'm okay with that. I don't know why I'm here otherwise. Except for love. I don't want to neglect that. Now, from a series title standpoint... Suffering and persecution we come to know as gifts of grace because of the set examples from history that have been presented to us. Can you tell me or show me where this is all sunshine and rainbows and why people would ever believe life is sunshine and rainbows when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament and really just the Word of God in and of itself? It makes no sense whatsoever. But suffering and persecution are gifts of grace because they change us. Maybe not so much changing us for, as Paul says, the endurance and the character, but I'd like to think for the gratitude of what Jesus did because why would a God come down on earth and live a perfect sinless life to save me and you? No other God in religion does that. All of them sit in their clouds in their thrones and are like, do this and do that and worship me and love me and maybe I'll be nice to you. But Jesus came down the mountain, suffered and was persecuted so that you and I could have a chance for a life without suffering and persecution with him in heaven as it was originally intended to be. Wow. Gratitude. Perception's reality. Maybe go back to that wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Because a lot of times we're trying to get things out of God that we don't need, but you think you want and it's wrong. So, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Make your choice. Dear Heavenly Father, certainly I love you. I serve you. Life isn't always easy, but life is what you've made it to be. And we can experience and enjoy life because you've allowed us that grace and that opportunity to do so. Gifts of grace according to the promise of life in Christ isn't all sunshine and rainbows. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes sin and death wreak havoc 
on the lives of those around us or within us, ourselves. And the temptations never stop. So, Lord Jesus, I know you're real. I know you're true. I know your word is valuable. I know your word is life-changing. I know what you've done is nothing short of a miracle. And even though we look at the miracle of life in and of itself as just something common nowadays, Lord Jesus, let our hearts and our minds never see the miracle of salvation as something common, as something expected, as something entitled to. But let us see it as the true gift it is, and let us see you as the true gift you are, because you came to earth. You lived a life that we couldn't live, and you cared for people that can't even care about themselves, let alone other people. How amazing are you, Lord Jesus? Let us rejoice and be glad in you, and let us count it all joy that whatever we're going through, you are by our side, and you are with us from now till the end of the age. And even till the end of the age, then we will be with you eternally, where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, and no more death. And that we will have full joy, full happiness, full love on a day-by-day, minute-by-minute, all-eternity basis. We love you, Lord Jesus. I can't even begin to speak words enough to thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.